Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius, and welcome back to the podcast. And in this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be discussing an email I received today from a reader from a North African country. And he seems to be undergoing a crisis of faith, and he's asking me my opinion on what he should do and what steps he should take to solve this problem. So what I want to do is read his email, and then we can discuss it and see what conclusions we can draw from it. He says, Hello Quintus, I'm writing this email just to share something with you, knowing that your opinion will be more than welcomed, even if it's an issue that needs to be solved by every person alone. I'm an avid reader, I'm, I'm an avid reader of your blog, and I plan on reading your books this summer. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. My question is linked to the spiritual and moral decay we live in. I'm actually from a North African country, raised in the ground of Islamic faith. We can say North African Islamic faith. With the years, I've started questioning a lot of the tenets of Islam as they seemed too extreme and somehow different from my real culture, somehow different from my real culture, which is mainly Berber and somehow Punic in nature. Eventually, The God of Islam meant no more for me, thus landing me in a horizon of questions without an answer. This is a problem that we are faced with now, and there is a big subterranean wave that sweeps all previous certainties about Islam in the heart. And he says, I started reading classical texts from Greece and Rome, and also Carl Jung theories, which I find interesting, especially the way... He considers spirituality and religious experience as the essence of a well-lived life. My question is, do you think that neo-masculinity can be somehow a solution against the nihilism following the the demise of the religions that promised a lot but gave a little? Thank you for reading my email, and I apologize for my errors as my native language is not English and also for the fact that my ideas are a little scattered. And so I want to say to this guy, no worries, man. Don't worry about it. That's fine. I understand the gist of the question that you're asking. So what I'm going to do is try to answer this guy's question. And first, let me just lay out some uh, reference points here to some answer some, uh, uh, respond to some references that he made in his email. When he says his real culture is mainly... Berber and somehow Punic in nature. What he's talking about, uh, 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 Ashab al Barbari, um, the, the Berber people. Um, and the, when he says that uh, his real culture is mainly Berber, the Berber peoples are a uh, indigenous inhabitants of North Africa before the arrival of the Semitic Arabs in the 7th century AD. And in Arabic, they're called Ashab al Mazari, if I remember right. Ashab al Mazari. And there's different tribes. There's the, the Tamazic, there's uh, a Tawarik, uh, Tuaregs or Tamazics. And they speak a language that's totally different from Arabic. And I don't know how many people know that or are interested in that, but it's a fact. And actually, to be honest, in. in uh, from what I've read, the Berbers actually constitute a majority in countries like uh, Morocco. 
and possibly also Algeria and Tunisia as well. So uh, it's an interesting fact. Uh, and historically, their language and culture has been sort of excluded from the mainstream, but that's starting to change a little bit as they're coming back into prominence and discovering their culture. And he also, when he says Punic, that's a reference to um, the the ancient inhabitants of uh, of North Africa. Well, concurrently with the Berbers, were the what the Romans called the Poeni, P-O-E-N-I, Poeni, uh, from which we get the word Punic. And these were settlers from Phoenicia, uh, settlers from Phoenicia who settled in North Africa in what is today Tunisia. Algeria and Morocco, um, you know, many centuries BC. Uh, they started doing that around 800 BC or so, and the uh, Carthage—that's where the city Carthage came from. The Carthage Carthaginians were Poini, were were Punic or Phoenician. They spoke a separate language. It was a Semitic language. It was um, related to Phoenician. And very little of it, very little or none of it has survived. There's a there's a few scattered fragments of it that survive in some of the plays of uh, of of Plautus. I think the Roman playwright Plautus. There's a there's a few passages where he tries to reproduce the sound of it. But in any case, I'm getting off on a big digression here, and I don't want to do that. But the gist of what he's trying to say is that he feels right now a little bit alienated from from Islam and from organized religion in general. And so I want to try to respond to that and see if we can come up with some answers. The first thing I want to say is that it's very common for young guys to go through crises of faith, to go through periods of doubt, to go through periods of questioning, uh, periods of probing and searching for the truth. I think once you get older, you realize that people go through stages. The first stage that a man goes through is the stage of doubt and questioning things. He doesn't believe anything. He doesn't accept inherited doctrines. And he rejects them. He finds them useless. He finds them of no consequence and no utility or, or validity or applicability to his everyday life. That's the first reaction. And then as he gets older, he begins to see the wisdom and he begins to see the reasons why the doctrines of organized religion were established and took root and are important in society. He begins to understand the social function that these doctrines serve. And I've written about this in my books. I've written about this in Pantheon. I've written about this in 37 and to a lesser extent in Pathways. But we talk about the necessity of religious belief, the necessity of these moral codes. And that's really what religions do, is they are the transmitter of moral codes. And I thought it was interesting that I got this email from a guy who grew up in the the Muslim world, because it's it's. Uh, I recently wrote an article for my site called the, the Need for a Fighting Ideology. And it basically was lamenting the fact that the West today does not really have a counterpart to the militant uh, ideology of Islam that today is basically assaulting the West. And in response, we just have these tepid, 
technocratic responses that rely on military and technology. We don't really have a fighting faith anymore like we did maybe in the Middle Ages or the early modern period. We don't have that. And I think deep down, if many people in the West were honest with themselves, if many people were honest with themselves, they would basically admit that deep down, I think many of them secretly envy the certitude that they see in these militant fanatics. I I don't think they admire them. I don't think they would ever want to live under them or agree with any of their ideology. But there is something grudgingly admirable in the fact that you can still find today people who are willing to die for a cause, who are willing to die for a religious belief, when in the West you can't find anyone willing to do that. And that may have existed hundreds of years ago, but it certainly does not exist now. And that's something that I think many people in the West, if they were honest with themselves, they would admit that deep down there is some admiration. I I, I hesitate to use that word admiration, but there is some grudging respect that they're willing to give, or some envy maybe, at the stability and at the maybe peace that belief finally brings to people who are weary of puzzles and problems and the uncertainties that are brought by today's technological societies and the burdens that all of that brings. You know, at some point people just get tired. At some point they want to know the truth or they want to know certainty, never mind whether it's true or not. So that is something also also to consider. I think what this guy is talking about is he's going through that doubting stage right now. But I predict as time goes on, and if he gives himself time, and I would encourage him to travel, to read. I think it's good that he's reading books from different cultures, not only from his own culture, but from different cultures. I think that's very important, and I think he should do that and continue to do that. It's also important to travel. And I, th- I predict that as time goes on, this guy will eventually begin to see the wisdom in some of the doctrines that his organized religion has laid out for the world. And even if he doesn't agree with them, he will at least begin to appreciate the reason behind them. And understanding is the first step in acceptance. You have to understand why these doctrines came about. And I think that's something that's very, very important. And you know, if I can continue my defense of religion, I I think it's important to note that religion has proven, organized religion anyway, has proven to be an indispensable social stabilizer. It has helped to stabilize societies. It's helped parents and teachers discipline the young with moral codes and reliance on rules. It's given meaning and dignity to the existence even of the lowliest pauper that you find in in society. It helps to dignify his existence. It helps to provide consolation and support for his bereavements and his trials and tribulations. And it almost seems to be cruel and inhuman to take that solace away from from people, from from the poor. You know, it, it, it really is something that is needed and it's a, it's an essential tool to stabilize society. You know, it, it, I think it's also been the original source of law, I think, in many ways. I think people don't appreciate that 
the original legal codes that many societies have come up with in the world have been sourced in organized religion. If we look at the the images on the ancient Egyptian walls, the, the tombs, the, the god Toth giving laws to Menes for Egypt, and then we look at uh, Babylonia, the god Shamash giving Hammurabi a code for Babylonia, Yahweh uh, giving the, the code to the Jews, uh, uh, the, the 613 precepts to Moses for the Jews, and the divine laws given by the Roman god, I think it was the divine nymph uh, Egeria, giving the Roman lawgiver Numa Pompilius the laws to be used in the foundation of Rome. So the, all of these moral codes and all of these legal codes ultimately were sourced in religious belief. So we can't just discount so easily the influence and the necessity, and the necessity of religion. We have to appreciate these things. We can't simply dismiss them with a wave of our hand and say, well, it's really not that big of a deal. Because if we look at history, we can really understand that no society has yet been able to be established or has, has, has yet been able to survive for any length of time, for any meaningful length of time, without the assistance of a religious faith. Look at the communist states. They flourished for a few decades in the 20th century, and essentially, essentially they're all dead now. They replaced maybe religion in, in, in a few remote extreme cases, like North Korea. They replaced religion with worship of the leader, which in many ways is just substituting one religion for another religion. But it, it's, it's proven to be indispensable in history, and that's something that we really have to be mind, mindful of. You know, and another reason that religion has survived so long is because human nature requires it. Human nature needs an external other to focus on. If we look at the, you know, even the oldest cave paintings we can find, scratched out on the surfaces of those walls, we can find evocations to gods. We can find uh, a desire for a religion that's rich in, in mysteries, myths, and miracles. These serve basic human needs. These things serve basic human needs. You know, I think the problem that has come up and the problem that so many people now have crises of faith is that the assaults of the Industrial Revolution and the assaults of the technological revolutions have undermined and have apparently avoided the need for traditional religious doctrines. You know, people growing up now will say, well, why do we need that? I don't really see the utility of that. I don't need it. It's not necessary. And people also point to the crimes and follies and abuses that organized religion seems to have wrought over the centuries. But what they don't understand is that if it were not for organized religions, things would be even worse. If we had atheistic societies, if we had societies based on nothingness or no firm belief in anything or abstract notions of reason or admonitions to doing good, it's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough to keep the average person in check. It's just not going to work. And in the modern world, it seems like secular institutions have replaced the functions that organized religions used to, used to take care of, like education, health care, 
um, you know, patriotism and corporate duties and responsibilities have replaced those of that, that used to be traditionally formed by religion. So this tension is what causes these crises. And in some ways we can see that fundamentalism and, and uh, religious extremism is a reaction to the modern world. It's a, it's a rebellion against the alienating effect of technology and the encroachments of the modern world onto, onto traditional areas of, of human endeavor and, and traditional areas of human social life. But, you know, anyone who's tempted to dismiss religion so easily should be aware of something else. Every time people have declared that it's about to die, and every time that people have declared it obsolete, it's managed to spring up anew in some new way. You know, if we look at history, it just, it just shows it to us. We look at the examples of ancient Egypt, Akhenaton used all of his powers to destroy the traditional the traditional religion of Amon, and, and even within a year after Akhenaton's death, the religion of, of Amon was restored by the priesthood. So he tried everything he could to eradicate it, and yet it came back in a different form almost immediately after he had died. Even if we look at India, you know, Buddha, I mean, in the, in the India of Buddha's youth, atheism ran rampant, and that was one of the reasons why he was drawn to religious doctrines, because he found very little spiritual sustenance in his environment, which I think is something that will ring familiar and true to those of us who are growing up now in the West. And... We move to, say, Greece and Rome. The philosophical schools replace the traditional gods. You know, philosophy, science, and education replace the traditional religious faith, uh, religious faith of the Hellenic and Roman pantheon of gods, the the, uh, the gods of the traditional Ro Greek and Roman pantheon. And they tried to replace those gods with philosophical schools like Epicureanism, Stoicism, and, 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 and the like. And pretty soon, a dozen Oriental faiths crept into the classical world to fulfill that spiritual void, or to fill that spiritual void that had been created. The cults of uh, Isis, uh, Serapis, of... Um, uh, God of the Bull, I can't remember the name of it, but there were a, a number of Near Eastern cults, which many of which survive today in one form or, or another, having been incorporated into Christian doctrine. But uh, these um, these cults, you know, of, um, Orpheus, I think Orpheus, Serapis, Isis, um, the the bull one I can't remember exactly, but I'll, I'm sure I'll, I'll remember it after I'm done with the podcast. But in any case, you can look it up. You can you can find it if you if you um, if you choose to do so. Even look at the French Revolution. After the French Revolution, the revolutionaries sought to replace the traditional religion. They found it constricting. They found it an aid of ignorance and oppression, and they tried to get rid of it. Robespierre and in 1793, uh, uh, you know, 
atheists like uh, Hebert and Chalmette, uh, Robespierre, these guys tried to establish the goddess of reason as some sort of new divinity for France. And Robespierre himself met his fate in the guillotine. And a few years later, once Napoleon took power, uh, he knew better than, than any of these, these uh, atheistic dorks the importance of religion. And in 1801, he signed a concordat with Pope Pius VII, which reestablished Catholicism as the official religion of, of, um, of France. So the point is, every time people have declared the end of religion, it has come back in one form or another. So we have to understand and we have to appreciate that religion serves a basic, fundamental, necessary need in the human identity, in the human condition. And that's never going to change. And that's something that I believe that history has proven over and over and over again. Now, that answer might not satisfy the gentleman who wrote me the email. Essentially, what he's asking me is, hey, do you think, Quintus, that neo-masculinity can serve as a substitute for religion? And the short answer is going to be no. The short answer is no. Neo-masculinity, the principles that we've talked about, that enshrine the new views or the synthesis of old masculine views in a new context. Those are not a substitute for a religion. What those neo-masculine doctrines really have been designed uh, to do is to remind men today of what are the core beliefs and core principles that, that masculinity is grounded on. It's meant to be a roadmap. It's meant to be a guide. It's meant to be an invocation. It's meant to be an evocation. But it's not meant to be a religion. It was never meant to be a religion. So my advice to this guy is this. Don't think too much about these things. Don't get too worked up about the fact that you're in doubt about your religion or you're feeling a crisis of spirituality. Don't worry about that. That's normal. That is a normal stage that every intelligent, inquisitive mind goes through as they go through that journey of life. So be patient with yourself. What I think you should do at this point is this. I think you should continue to study voraciously. Read voraciously. Read about your own religion. The Islamic religion, regardless of what its detractors or its critics, of which there are many, have to say, does have a very profound and rich uh, spiritual doctrine in mystical studies, in legal studies, in um, social mores. Uh, it has a long record of achievement in, in, um, in art and in science, at least up until the Middle Ages anyway. Now, those are not popular ideas, especially in the world of 2016, but yet they're ideas that need to be said. They need to be said because here at Fortress of the Mind, we give credit where credit is due. We do not share bigoted ideas. We do not uh, believe in uh, uh, harboring bigoted views about other cultures. Uh, we call it like we see it. And even though Islam today may be profoundly in need of reform or uh, in many ways uh, retrograde 
or not in conformity with the modern culture. We don't know yet where that's going to go. We don't know who's going to inherit the earth. We just don't know. We don't know. And even though uh, there's a lot to be said for technology and the modern world, there's also a lot to be said for spirituality. So in a sense, there is that duality where the one side has emphasized maybe too much the religion, and the other side, ours, has emphasized too much the consumerism and the technology. And there's got to be a middle ground. There has to be some sort of middle middle ground, some sort of synthesis. Maybe there will be a synthesis. Maybe, maybe there is a way to look uh, that look on some sort of positive. Maybe all these migrants and immigrants streaming into Europe from the Middle East. Maybe this will somehow act as the catalyst. I'm trying to look on the positive side here. Maybe maybe there will be some sort of catalytic or syncretic effect where you will have an advanced European conception of technology and, and society combined with some sort of spiritual belief or values that are rooted in the Near East. And maybe there will be some new religion that will come out of it. We don't know. We just don't know. Crazier things have happened in history. We could almost say that... Um, uh, you know there were there were there were, have been other religions that have formed in such ways through this clash of of different um, of different cultures. So those are my thoughts. I think he should. I think the reader, uh, the, the writer of the email, should continue his quest, continue to study, continue to learn, study your own culture, study foreign cultures, continue to travel, and let your ideas fester, let them germinate, let them ferment. And eventually, you will come to some sort of reconciliation with those opposing views that you have in your mind. And you'll come to some sort of realization that the human condition needs both. We need both faith and we need both reason. And you can't have one without the other if you want to have a healthy conception of humanity. And so that will conclude my podcast here at Fortress of the Mind tonight. I'm Quintus Curtius, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, I would ask that you go to iTunes and rate me on iTunes, and if you've bought one of my books, I would ask that you leave a review of it. I'd appreciate that. And until next time, I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.